0: I invite you to turn today to the book of John once again. We're in John chapter 7. Uh, we began John chapter 7 last week as we have studied through this book and seen that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And we have seen Jesus' ministry and his approach to ministry unfold and the message of himself, the Messiah, who would be the Lamb of God given to take away the sins of the world. And we've begun to see uh, there's a division. Um, last time, or two times ago, as we finished chapter six, we, we saw those disciples who walked away. Um, we had seen those who had, the religious leaders who had rejected him, the disciples who then would reject him, and then the 12 uh, disciples who were his closest um, uh, um, associates on this earth who, who said, Where are we going to go? You had the words of eternal life. We have, we have heard and we have believed in who you are. And so then last time, we picked up in chapter seven, which takes place around the Feast of Tabernacles, and we saw the reaction of Jesus' family, his own family who did not believe in him, and their trip that they took uh, to the Feast of Tabernacles, and then Jesus who went later, and this is where this account today picks up. In John chapter seven, verses 14 through 24, we're going to see the undeniable doctrine of who Jesus is and what he teaches Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and talked, and the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Father, we thank you now for this few minutes we have set aside to look at your word together today. And we ask that As we study the words of Jesus here today to those who question his authority, who questioned his doctrine and his teaching, who questioned even at times his sanity uh, because they wanted to do nothing but brush aside their convicted hearts, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts today. We ask that you would lay aside the distractions for our mind, you would lay aside uh, the denials that we have sought to make about our sin and about ourselves, and that you would help us to see you as you really are, and you would help us to see ourselves as we really are, and that you would help us today uh, to make whatever it is in our lives that needs to be right with you, help us to make those things right. There may be one who sits here today, Lord, who does not has not placed full and complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Lord, I pray you would work in their heart today that you would show them the hope of the gospel. Lord, for Christians here today, we know that there are many of us who continue uh, to fight against sin, as on this side of eternity will not be perfect, but Lord, there are times in our lives and our hearts we are so stubborn in these things, and we wish not to make them right, and we pray today you would Help us to submit, to do the will of God in our lives today. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk out of this place different than we came in today because we have heard your word, your truth proclaimed, and your Holy Spirit has applied it to our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. There are many times in our lives when a substitute or perhaps even a cheaper product isn't a big deal. Um, or maybe it provides no discernible difference in whatever it is that we're doing. Other times, you're going to find that there is no such thing as a substitute for the original. That the original is the best, and it always will be. It'll be the best quality. It'll provide you the best experience, and so on. I learned this lesson as a young boy, I was, and I was growing up, and I was growing in a fascination with Lego sets, now, some of you may contend that that fascination perhaps borders on an addiction in my adult life, but I promise you, I have it completely under control, um, and it doesn't take over my life, okay? And those of you who have been in my office know that I still have a fascination with Lego sets, and my, I use my kids sometimes as an excuse, okay? But I remember as a boy, somewhere around the age of eight, wanting to buy a specific Lego set. Now, this Lego set was a Spanish Armada-inspired ship. It had beautiful sails. It had the necessary firepower to ward off pirates and a great complement of crew members. I mean, basically, it's everything that a young man would want, right? To have adventures on the high seas. And out of the goodness uh, you know, the, uh, of her heart, my mother looked at this desire I had and realized that the price tag for such a set was $50. And so she made an attempt to try to keep her son from spending every last dime he had, and she located an alternative option, which was a $15 Viking ship. It was made by another company that produced bricks that looked like Lego bricks, but they're not the same. And so we, we, we began to work on that together, and I don't really remember much about this ship that, um, that she found and that I bought, But I do remember that we struggled very hard to get those pieces to stay together. I was just telling my wife about this last night, and I said, the only thing I I remember is that it was never together because it just fell apart all the time. And I remember my mom telling me that she wished we had never gone that route, and I remember that happy day in the Kmart checkout as I stood there and purchased the the ship of my Lego dreams, right? I still have it, by the way, okay? It's well-loved. Sometimes in life, there are no substitutes for the originals. There are no substitutes for the quality of that product. The quality is superior. The difference is undeniable. And there will be detractors that are firmly entrenched in the view that there are viable alternatives. And when placed side by side, they will even fight for this side. But though they may fight, there are certain things where the evidence is just overwhelming. And this is true for that which matters most for your life the doctrine of Jesus Christ. For years, the Jewish religious religious leadership in Israel peddled a doctrine of salvation by works of the law. They held people under them in check through selfish pride, self-inflating righteousness, and their own brand of doctrine derived from a twisted view of the law of God. And God sent warnings and denunciations through prophets, and yet this system continued to perpetuate, and we see it rear its ugly head throughout the life of Jesus. And one day, Jesus entered the scene. The incarnate Word, the Son of God, the Messiah, God in flesh, came to earth, proclaiming the message of salvation, not through the law, which the law was never intended to do, but in himself. His doctrine was unlike that which the people had heard before because his doctrine was a doctrine not of self-righteousness but of belief in him as the only way to God. And this teaching certainly ruffled the feathers of the nation of Israel. There were those who believed and followed Jesus. There were those who listened half-heartedly, attempting to enjoy the benefits of Jesus' ministry while, while laying aside what he said. And then there were those who outright rejected Jesus, taking a posture of animosity and opposition. And here, in Jerusalem, in John chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus appears and once again finds himself and his teaching under attack. However, he clearly shows once again the undeniable truth of what he says and seeks the conviction of man's sin that they may find life in himself. And what you see in this passage is because Jesus is the Son of God, Sent to fulfill God's plan of salvation. I must submit myself to him, leaving behind my own self-righteousness to find eternal life in him and to live for his glory. Jesus is the son of God. Sent in God's perfect time. We read in Galatians chapter 4 that that the time that Jesus came was the perfect time in the eternal plan of God. And he came to a nation that needed to hear this message. And he came to to us as we need to hear this message as well. That without him, there is no hope of salvation. Without him, there is no eternal life. Without him, there is no living as, as he would call us to live for the glory of him and the kingdom of God. And so in order to live in a way that pleases him, we must submit ourselves to him and what he says. And we're going to see today in this passage that this has application to both sides. One to, to, to one who does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, obviously the first and foremost thing one must do is submit themselves to what Jesus says and place belief and faith in him because John writes again and again throughout the gospel that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And then on the other side, those who have trusted Jesus Christ and and have said, I I believe in that and I am a disciple. We must continue to submit ourselves to him that we may live for him. Because I don't know if you've noticed, those of you who who have come to Christ for salvation, you, you still aren't perfect. Anybody have noticed that? We still struggle with sin. And we still can't do it in our own strength. We need his grace and his strength in our lives. And that only comes through submitting to him. So what we see here is Jesus has entered the the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He he entered it privately or quietly or discreetly or or in secret. Um, Now we see the surprising authority with which he appears and begins to speak in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14 we see the surprising appearance now about the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So when Jesus' brothers went up to the feast at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus told them that his time was not yet right to go to the feast because his presence on the road would have accelerated the plan of God's redemption and brought about a confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel prematurely. Instead, Jesus waited and made his way to Jerusalem in secret when the time was right, And now he has appeared in Jerusalem in what we're told is the middle of the feast. The festivities of the week are half over, everything there is well underway, and his appearance certainly would have take people off guard. We read last time that the religious leaders of Israel were, were asking this question, where is Jesus? And the rest, the balance of the people were debating quietly amongst themselves uh, the merits of Jesus, whether he was one to be followed or not. Jesus also then did something that would stir the religious leaders and surprise those who were there. He appeared, not just anywhere in the city, but he appeared in the temple for the purpose of teaching. Now, when John here refers to the temple, he would have been referring to the the courts or the outer areas that surrounded the temple. It was a common place in the nation of Israel that you would find rabbis teaching students and others who would listen in the courts of the temple. So any plans that the religious leaders may have had about seizing Jesus in private in order to kill him would have been thrown off and thwarted by this surprise appearance. For though the people debated Jesus' merits quietly, the religious leadership of Israel still had to tread carefully if they were to carry out the plans they had for Jesus. And in the face of this opposition... Jesus fearlessly taught the truth of himself, and as he did, we see unfold before us the continued responses of the people to him. And what you have to understand is that whenever Jesus taught, those who listened to him were polarized. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. There is no middle road when it comes to Jesus. And once again, we see the polarized response to him here. And we see the tactic of some of them as they are astonished at what he says, Verse 15, and the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? So we see here not only the surprised appearance of Jesus, but the surpassing knowledge that he has. We see the reaction that many experienced over the course of Jesus' ministry here, because those listening to him teach in the temple area were told that they marveled at what he taught. This word, marveled, carries the idea of being completely astonished and awestruck regarding something with amazement. And this is not an uncommon response to the teachings of Jesus throughout his ministry. We read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, which is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, these things. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority. And not as the scribes. Or in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth in Matthew 13, verse 54, we read, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. And so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? You see, the Jews had heard teaching on the word of God their entire lives. They had heard the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. They had heard the comments of the rabbis on these things. Now, understand that most often the Jewish rabbis did little more than parrot the teachings of rabbis that had come before them. And those who had been considered to be experts on those things. But Jesus came and brought with him a completely different approach, he brought with him a surprising authority on the things of God. Because he spoke not the words of man, but he spoke to them the word of God. He was not repeating the words of others. He was speaking with the authority of God. And as I said in the, in the introduction, this ruffles the feathers of the religious hierarchy of Israel. And most likely that is to whom John is referring here again in this verse when he says, The Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Because what, they have, what has been proven over and over again is that these people cannot refute and cannot undermine and cannot uh, 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 show what Jesus says to be untrue. He speaks nothing but truth as God. They cannot disprove it. So they must now go after the credibility of who Jesus is. They wonder aloud about the credentials of Jesus, wondering where he learned to teach like this. Because to be a revered rabbi in the system, you had to have studied under a revered rabbi. You had to receive a certain level or amount of training. He had not come up through these normal ranks. Instead, he had come on the scene rather suddenly, teaching things that they had never heard before. So basically what they're saying in this verse here that we read is is that he does not have the right formal training and therefore lacks the authority to legitimately teach these things. The implication therefore is that Jesus is not teaching things that are right. He is instead teaching his own ideas and his own private musings and conclusions about these things. So therefore he is not to be listened to. That's the whole idea behind this attack on the credentials of Jesus. But Jesus then hears what they say and begins to set the record straight, showing that his teaching is superior to all that have come before him. And this is where we get to the main part of this message. We see the surprising authority, but then Jesus is going to show in these next few verses here that the doctrine that he gives is a superior doctrine as the doctrine that is from God himself. In verse 16, Jesus attests to the divine source of which he speaks. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Again, you have to understand that in verse 15, the implication is he's just making up stuff as he goes along. He's, he's just giving these private musings and these things, and Jesus says, this doesn't come from me, but from him who sent me. He directly refutes this attack on his authority. He instead points those listening first to his divine source for all he says. Jesus' knowledge was not due to human education. You and I have a way in which we go about learning things as human beings. Um, If you've raised raised kids, you have gone about um, um, raising them and teaching them things. And that's a very dangerous thing because some of you um, have brainwashed your kids to, you know, cheer for things like Ohio State, okay? And we have to be very careful about that, okay? But you and I go about learning these things in a certain way. Jesus' knowledge doesn't come about Through the normal means of human education. Because Jesus is God, he knows all things. Because Jesus is one with the Father, the things that he teaches are from the Father. Now, Jesus had heard the things of God taught like any other Jewish boy, but his knowledge of these things did not come about from these lessons. Instead, he taught what was given him directly by God the Father to teach. Jesus, as God the Son, was ever in communion. With God the Father. He knew exactly what the Father wanted him to say and teach, and he carried out that plan perfectly. And Jesus had already made it clear to them, these religious leaders in Jerusalem, that he and the Father are one. In the works that he did. We read in John 5, verse 17, several weeks back, but Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. So in this verse, Jesus is clearly showing them that he and the Father are one in the things that he has done. He also, a few verses later, made it clear that his judgment was from the Father in verse 30 of John chapter 5. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. So this statement in verse 16 fits into the whole of who Jesus is. What he taught was directly from God the Father. And let us take a second and understand the approach of Jesus in these things as he speaks to this religious leadership in the audience. He did not shy away from his claims to deity, but he also made it abundantly clear that he was from God. This fits in with what the Jewish people knew and believed. If one came and claimed to be God, that would be considered blasphemy. And indeed, that's exactly what they accused Jesus of in verse in chapter 5 when he made those claims and those statements. But at the same time, Jesus never got away from the fact that he received these things or did these things in accordance with the will of the Father. But one who claimed to be sent from God was something that was very familiar to the Jewish people because throughout Jewish history, God's people received and even proclaimed God's word to others. As was noted before, rabbis generally gave the words of other rabbis whose interpretations may or may not have been correct. But then we take it back another step, and you look throughout the Old Testament, and you meet these guys who were called prophets, these men were the, were the mouthpiece of God. They were those who gave a message directly from God to the people. And so you read over and over again in the Old Testament, these prophets would say, thus says the Lord. This is not a message that they were making up on the spot. It was a message that had been given them from God to give to others. And then you have Jesus who comes. And his words are entirely Different. Jesus does not teach what these previous rabbis have taught. He does not continue to perpetuate these teachings and musings uh, these so-called experts have made on the law of God. He does not even proclaim, thus says the Lord. Instead, he says, I say unto you. There's a big difference. He is the divine source as one with the Father. And honestly, today you experience the same sort of thing. Because when the Word of God is proclaimed in church, the Word of God is undeniably the final authority on all things. God has has inspired and preserved His Word for you and I to read today. And if you want to know what the final word on anything is, this is where you have to go. Now, I can stand up here every week and declare you things that are true based on the Word of God. However, I have to understand, and you have to understand, that my interpretations and applications of a text may or may not be correct because I am human. That is why you should be opening the Scriptures and looking at these things for yourself. That is why I, as your, as your pastor, encourage you to go and study the Word of God for yourself. That is why I take great care to study a passage of Scripture every week. And I want to tell you something. My promise to you every week at Beaverton Baptist Church is I will not stand up in this pulpit unprepared. There will always be here fresh bread and clean water for hungering and thirsting souls. Why? Not because I have some incredible words of wisdom that you come to hear, but because I promise to you to take time to study the Word of God every week and just give you the Word of God. Now, Jesus' abilities were quite different. He spoke the very words of God. His authority is extremely evident. And that, again, uh, made the the religious leaders very uncomfortable with what he said. Because God's word confronts our pride and it confronts our sin and it calls for a response. And like the religious leaders, we too can try to make God's word serve our own ends. Or we can seek to dismiss it and, 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 and minimize its effect on our lives. But I'm telling you right now, God's word says what it means, and it means what it says. And the Holy Spirit will use it to do his work in our hearts and lives. And Jesus says in verse 17, it is alive, And it does do its work in us because in verse 17, the second attestation to what Jesus says is not just the divine source, but it is the fact that what he teaches is the living word. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak my own authority. Jesus says the ultimate testimony to the authority of his word is a person's submission to its power. If you truly want to know God's word is true, and you truly want to see its power effected in your life, then you must be willing, as Jesus says, to do the will of God. This requires humility to listen to and follow God's word. It means believing what Jesus says. This is not a pragmatic try it and see if you like it this is a whole heart commitment and belief to trust in Jesus and follow what he says. And then and only then will you see the power of God in your life. It's more than head knowledge. It's embracing the life of a disciple. It means knowing God, loving God, and obeying God. And what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting the head and the heart. God's power is, found in God's word, will confirm for you the things of God as you internalize and obey them. God's power found in God's word will confirm for you the things of God as you internalize and obey them. As one author said it, everyone's teaching stands or falls by the fruit it produces in the lives of those who embrace it. And there is already in Jesus' ministry a divide in the responses to Jesus. What Jesus is saying is that in order to fully experience and fully understand the authority with which he speaks, one must take the attitude that Peter declared in Capernaum in John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69, but Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is exactly what Jesus is saying here. These men, there were 12 of them, 11 of them truly believed and trusted in Jesus and followed him. They listened to and believed what Jesus said. They submitted their wills to the will of God. And guess what? They found out who Jesus is. They found new life in him. When you follow the word of God, you will find out it is true. And when you do not, You will no longer experience its authority in your life. I have met those in life who know the word of God. They have listened to what it says. They can repeat verses, then phrases back to you, and then they can make it say whatever it is they want it to say to to, to, to back up their latest fascination or their latest issue in life. But when it comes down to truly doing what God says, they will not submit themselves to obeying the word of God. That's the difference between knowing the word of God and believing and literally knowing, if I can use it another way, the word of God. And then they wonder, oh man, why do I struggle so much in life? Because you continue to fight against who God is and what he said. You continue to say, well, I know that's what you want, God, but I'm just going to do things my own way. Those who know the word of God in such a way are not unlike the Pharisees and other religious leaders of Jesus' day. Listen, if you want to talk about people who knew the word of God, look no further than a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a scribe, whatever sect of religious leadership you want in Israel. They knew the word of God. They knew it backwards, they knew it forwards, they knew the little loopholes that they had created so they could do this or do that or not do this or not do that, but they refused to submit themselves to what it said, and therefore did not truly experience the power and the, and, and the, and the relationship with God. An accumulation of Bible knowledge is a poor substitute for growing love for Christ as you submit to his will you can stuff your head with all kinds of facts about the word of God and not make an ounce of difference in your life. And that's the difference between knowledge and truly seeking to know and obey God. And when you're out of line with God, everything else in your life will be affected. Do you want to know why your relationships are a mess? Because you don't know God the way you're supposed to. Do you want to know why You struggle with the sin over and over and over again and have no victory because you don't submit to God. Do you want to know why you don't have peace in your heart? Because you don't submit to God. My friend, that happens over and over and over again in our lives. First and foremost, as I said, for our salvation, that we cannot experience true peace with God for eternity if we do not know him as our Savior. But secondly, as we live our lives as Christians and we begin to see things in our lives that fall apart and crumble, and we realize it's because God has been convicting us of that sin, but we have not done anything about it. Instead, we have continued to plow ahead, saying, this is what I want. When God wants us to submit ourselves to him. And then, and only then, will you find true peace with him and others and whatever else you're facing. Knowing God and the power and the authority of his word is only available to those who obey the word without question and completely. And listen, folks, I'm not here to say, well, if you don't get it right every time, then then just, no, we're not going to get it right every time. That's why the grace of God is such an amazing thing. But the grace of God should compel us to saying, okay, that's wrong. I've seen it. Now, God, I'm going to need your grace to, to, to find victory over this. And this is the second attestation to Jesus' superior doctrine as a divine source, and it's a living word whose results are seen when one submits himself to it. But then lastly, Jesus points to the glory of his own ministry to show the superior doctrine, doctrine in himself. In verse 18, we see the test of glory that he says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. What Jesus does now is points the detractors from his ministry to those uh, who are, uh, to, to, to to the motivations behind his ministry. You see, false messiahs and those seeking only to make a name for themselves with their own words do not seek the glory of God in their lives. Instead, They use their words and their teachings to glorify themselves. Jesus was clear in his claims that he was there to follow the will of the Father and to bring him glory. Now, he is one with the Father, but he is also subject to the sovereign plan of the Father as the Godhead works in perfect unity. And all glory belongs to God. Jesus was not seeking his own exaltation and glory, but that of God the Father's. False teachers, on the other hand, glorify only themselves. And Jesus had harsh words for those in his day who exhibited such behavior. We read in Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 through 7, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Jesus came in a different way. He came in perfect humility. Not to be served, as he says in Mark chapter 10, but to serve. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that he came in humbleness. He proclaimed the true way to eternity through himself, and that would one day mean his death. He would give himself for mankind to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, his own motives for his ministry are a refutation to those attacks that these people are launching on his authority. His all-consuming passion for the glory of God the Father proves Jesus' mission from the Father and the source of all that he said. And so now Jesus turns the tables on the accusations that are made and shows in the last six verses here the spurious standard that is being held by those that are there that day. In verse 19, you see the disobedience that Jesus calls the people out for. He says, did not Moses give you the law yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The religious leaders sought to discredit Jesus and attack his convicting message. And in turn, Jesus refuted this attack on his credentials and showing instead his divine origins once again. Now, he is going to expose their hypocrisy in regard to the law. Now, the religious leaders were m- meticulous, so they wanted you to understand and, and see that they were meticulous keepers of the law of God. They knew what it said, as I said earlier, backwards and forwards. They knew all the little parts that were added on by the rabbis. They revered Moses and I uh, put in huge quotation marks his law. Of course, we know it came from God. They revered that highly. Yet Jesus, as God, reading the hearts of all who gathered there, called them out for their disobedience. See, they claimed spiritual superiority, yet they were just as sinful as anyone else. Please understand, no one on the face of this earth has ever entered the kingdom of God by keeping the law of God. Because that standard is perfection. And you and I are incapable of that, of meeting that standard. God gave the law through Moses to reveal man's sin by showing his holiness. Jesus came to fulfill the law and offer salvation for all. And you say, well, what about this sacrifice system that, Jesus, that God instituted for his people, yes, he did institute the system by which the people were to offer sacrifices for their sin, to atone for their sins. But people who lived then were, were, came to God just like anybody else today in that they had to place faith in who God is. They needed his righteousness. We read of Abraham who believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. And the laws revealed time and again that we are incapable of living up to God's standard. And that was the whole point of it. If you would be a child of God, you must admit your sinfulness to God and place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew the hearts of all who were gathered there that day. And if you remember, back to chapter 5. What is it that the religious leaders wanted to do to Jesus after their encounter in chapter 5? They wanted to kill him. From that time forth, they were seeking his death. And so now Jesus stands in front of these people who have come to hear him teach, in front of these religious leaders who are questioning his authority, in front of these religious leaders who want nothing more than to kill him and assessing their hearts and knowing their motives. He calls them out for it right here. He says at the end of verse 19, why do you seek to kill me? These self-aggrandized disciples of Moses harbored hearts full of sin. They were self-righteous souls comparing themselves to the worst of society instead of to the true standard of the law of God. My friend, comparing yourself to others will never lead you to salvation because you will always find someone who's worse off than you, at least in your own opinion. Their treatment of Jesus and their disposition towards him and their plans for his future were an affront to the law they so highly regarded and the obedience they falsely touted. Here they said, well, we're keepers of the law of God. We, We follow it. And Jesus says, you're planning to murder me. Basically, if I can give you the Pastor Andrew Standard Version. That's disobedience. This question was posed, though, not just to those religious leaders, but to everyone who was there. And the reaction is one of incredulity. I mean, look at the disbelief that fills the people in verse 20. The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? The crowd is dismissive here of Jesus' question. And the light of Jesus that should have rebuked the darkness of their hearts instead continued to harden them to himself. Now, the crowd in general who had gathered probably did not understand or know all the intentions of the religious leadership. And so to them, the things that Jesus says here is they're crazy at best. That's why they accuse him of demon possession. Now this is yet another affront to Jesus' messiahship because they accuse the Son of God of being no more than an agent of Satan. And though the crowd may not yet be ready to kill Jesus, understand that at the next great religious feast of Israel, they would be. They would be, their failure to turn their hearts to him would lead to their manipulation by the religious leaders and they would rain down shouts calling for Jesus' crucifixion at the next great feast. They would be the agents whereby Jesus' death would be sealed. And this too would all work in God's providential plan of salvation. So Jesus now continues to expose the double standard held here against himself, his claims, and his work. We look at the the rest of the verses in verse 21 through 24 and we see that double standard. Let's read the whole passage here to understand the scope. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So now Jesus is going to bring the controversy at hand front and center once again. He says here that he did one work that has caused quite a stir in the hearts and lives of many. Now, the one work that Jesus is referring to is the work we looked at in John chapter 5 when Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda and healed a man of his debilitating disease, that he had been, that he had been like that for, for almost four decades of his life. And this all centered around the fact that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, and then he told this man to rise, and part of that, as part of that healing, he said, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And when he did that, the religious leaders saw him, they, they called him out for carrying his bed on the Sabbath, and they realized it was Jesus who had done this. They had begun to go after Jesus, claiming he had not only broken the Sabbath, but encouraged others to do the same. And therefore, he was disobeying the law of God. And Jesus is seeking to show that, that, that what he had done was not indeed a breaking of the Sabbath, but what it was, it was challenging their authority and their false teachings. And so now, what you have in these four verses is what's known as a caustic argument. Let me explain what that is. What you do in a caustic argument, and this is typical of, of these times and these teachings, you would take two instances and you set them side by side in order to prove a point. So once again... Jesus is going to appeal to Moses. And if you remember, this is who all of these people, these religious leaders especially, go back to. They look and revere greatly. They look to Moses, who is the freer of their people in their minds from, from, from Egypt. You know, they don't give any credit to God who used Moses, who was the one who gave them the law and all these things they were to do. And so, he begins to appeal to the right of circumcision. Now, this was a right that Jesus, again, clarifies wasn't instituted with Moses, but it came from the fathers, the, the fathers, the, the patriarchs. It was actually instituted beginning with Abraham, and it was a sign of the covenant that was given by God. It was practiced by God's people to, to set them apart and to show this covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and again in Genesis chapter 15, and in Genesis 17, you see that sign that God gave. Now. It was then codified in the law that God gave through Moses. And in the law of God, God made it clear that the sign of circumcision was to be carried out on every male child of the people of Israel on the eighth day of life. Now, you can imagine that over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it's going to happen more than once that the eighth day of life for one of these little baby boys is going to fall on a Sabbath. And of course, what are you not supposed to do on a Sabbath? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, what do you do here? Well, what they did is they upheld the law of God. And so therefore, there was an exception given that we need to obey the sign of circumcision. So if it happens, the eighth day happens to be on the Sabbath, well, it's okay to do that because this is part of God's law. And it was done in order that this sign of the covenant and ceremonial cleansing of one member of the body should be carried out. So Jesus argues then that there is no cause for anger against him for making an entire man well on the Sabbath. Basically, he says, if this is what you do on the Sabbath in order to keep the the law of God and to obey him, then there is no argument to be made. I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. I healed him. Of this disease that he had. If the Sabbath laws prohibiting work can be set aside for this ceremonial rite, they can certainly be set aside for physical healing and a call to spiritual healing. This argument <clears throat> that Jesus makes is impeccable. It takes the very things the Jews believed and, it, and, it, and that they practiced to verify Jesus' own work. Therefore, Jesus indicts them in verse 24 for their superficial outward judgments of him and his work. Instead of majoring on the minors and missing the spiritual intents of his teachings, they needed to open their hearts to him. What he tells them in verse 24, but judge with a righteous judgment, or you could say judge with a right judgment judgment. They needed to make a right judgment of him by placing their faith in him. And in doing that, they would be willing to do his will, as Jesus spoke of in verse 17. They would be submitting themselves to Jesus' call for belief and find true life in him. The doctrine of who Jesus is is undeniable. It's irreplaceable. There are no substitutes. It, he is who he says he is. He teaches the truth of God for the glory of God and calls us to submit to God that we may see his power in our lives. He fulfilled the law as we cannot do. And though he would be rejected and crucified, he is risen again and offers you eternal life and life in himself. And so I encourage you today, if you have not done so, to abandon yourself to find life in him. And if you have, live that new life in him today. Because Jesus is the son of God, sent to fulfill God's plan, I must submit myself to him, leaving behind my own self-righteousness to find eternal life in him and live for his glory. Once again, Jesus shows his identity as the son of God and the necessity of trusting in his word alone. Like those before him in that day, we all, have also failed to keep God's holy and perfect law. And such failure results in the just judgment of sin on our lives. And the only way to heaven, and the only way to eternal life is through Jesus alone. There are no works to do to gain eternity. There are no behaviors to endorse to enter God's presence. There is only trust in Jesus. Submitting our will to the will of God involves believing on Jesus' name and placing our trust in him. And then, submission to the will of God is an ongoing act in our lives. You see, disciples must continue to submit to the will of God. And what is the will of God for a Christian, for a disciple? It is ever-growing Christ-like. Your actions, habits, words, and choices should change if you are a child of God. It is natural that one who has experienced such incredible life transformation lives out that transformation. Self-righteousness is a nasty, nasty thing, and it entraps many from coming to Jesus and still many others from growing in him. Because here's the thing, in self-righteousness, if you think you're good enough or that you can work your way to heaven, then you're not going to submit your will to the will of God and come to Jesus in faith. You must set aside your self-righteousness and humble yourself before God. But Christian, you and I must recognize that self-righteousness is still ever a possibility in our own hearts. And you know what it does? It crowds out our heart of the grace of God. It hinders you from growing in the Lord as you fail to see a need for His grace to change your life. And then it also comes out in how you live. You can very simply ask yourself, how do I treat others who are different from me? How do I treat other people, who, even other Christians, who apply the Scriptures differently than I do? How do I treat others around me? Or even... Ask ourselves, what do I excuse in my life while accusing it in the lives of others? That's a huge test of self-righteousness right there. We are so quick to call out sins in other people's lives that we ourselves struggle with. That we ourselves don't want to give up. That we ourselves know are wrong, but then we think, oh, well, it's really wrong when somebody else does it. A lack of grace is often due to the presence of self-righteousness in our lives. The doctrine of Jesus is undeniable, and it is eternal. It is the superior, singular doctrine needed for eternity and godly living. The Word of God must be the guide of our lives as a follower of God. And so I encourage you to prioritize obedience to God above all else and enjoy the incredible blessing of fellowship with Him. And I don't know where you are today. I have a relationship with many of you in this room, and you, we've, we've talked about things in your life, but, but at the end of the day, how you're doing in, relationship, in your relationship with God is between you and God. There are things that we say and we do, and we don't tell anybody those things. There are things that roll around in our heads that we don't express. And I just encourage you that if God is doing something in your life today, submit yourself to him. Not because some pastor stood up in church and said this is what you should do, but because it's the right thing to do. Because it's what Jesus called for us to do. If there's a sin that God has convicted you of today, I encourage you to take time to make it right. To seek, the, if it's affecting other people, seek their forgiveness if it involves them. If you need help, i would be here to help you. We'd love to, to, to show you what the Word of God says about whatever it is you're dealing with. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Find true eternal life in Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its power to change our lives. And truly, God, we believe that there is power in Your Word and in Your Word alone. Lord, I have sought today to simply point others to Your Word. There is little power in a preacher's word, but there is great unlimited power in your word. And we ask today that you would use that word and do a great work in our hearts. Convict us of our sin. Show us the hope to be made right. Help us to serve you with joy. And Lord, we ask that you help us to do business with you today, to not get distracted or not put it off, but make those things right. If we need help, help us to seek it. Help us to find those who can point us to the things of God and help us to grow in him. We ask, as we prepare to leave this place today, you would watch over and protect us, bring us back here tonight to worship you again, to learn from your word. In your name we pray, amen.